Should we open with Orso? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Since our last episode, Orso has reopened. Oh, yes, yes, it has. Yes. We've moved into the retirement home for Joel and Waiters, <laughs> otherwise known as Orso. Yeah, how's the menu, guys? How's the food? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Amazing. It is after years and years of years of gas leaks and pandemics and everything else. Everything is working like it should. There's pizza on the menu. There's One. quail on the menu. There's liver on the menu. The there's quail pizza is bread. not on the menu. It is today. It, it is? Okay. Yes. <laughs> was it last, it wasn't what about last night. Vitello tonato? It is. Absolutely. Delicious. So, yes, you can call up Orso. You can go on to Open Table. If you've never been, give it a go. It's delightful. We're open... Uh, Tuesday through Saturday evening, starting at five o'clock. If you would like to, you know, see Jason or myself in person, you can come to Orso and say hi. You could autograph people's phones that we they could. listen to the podcast. We could do that. <laughs> could you imagine? I only sign bosoms. I'm just going right. to say, there you go. You know what? You say that it could happen. You, you, you never know. There. Yes. Oh man, I'm gonna. I hope I'm there that day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have a Tony Award winner on our podcast today. Yes, and I'd like to say thank you to the Academy. No, no, to not the you, Tony Jason. voters. Not you. Oh, Jason. not me. Honorary oh. Tonys don't count, Jason. No, he actually won a competitive Tony um, in the high jump. <laughs> no, this week our guest is one of the most talented and big-hearted and brilliant men in the business, and that's Danny Burstein. I second that emotion. We've wanted to talk to Danny for a long time. And what we found was in reaching out to him, he really wanted to share his love of Joe Allen with us. What was extraordinary is just how open and vulnerable he allows himself to be speaking about very difficult subjects with incredible candor, incredible honesty, and just it takes a big man to be so vulnerable. He's a wonderful guy. He's an important part of the community. And we were really, really lucky to have him. And if you haven't, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. We would really appreciate it. I would love that. And if someone gives us a review, what, what is the range? Uh, well, a good, uh, you know, should... a positive review only, please. If you if you really hate us, just don't listen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Without further ado, Mr. Danny Burstein, doing the best Tony Randall in the business on cocktails at table seven. so tempted to sign in as Cheetah Rivera or somebody like that. <laughs> Debbie Allen. You mentioned Debbie Allen, which brings me to fame. They filmed the movie while you were a student there. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I was, in, I was an extra in the film. I, I can't remember, but you know, I think you see my elbow flying by or whatever. <laughs> so I, I saw a guy and he had kind of a, like a little bit of a page boy kind of haircut. And he had a red polo shirt, a white collar. And I hoped it <laughs> could was <be>. you. <laughs> could be. I remember dancing, uh, you know, in the streets and running through the halls and running up and down the stairs. And I did so many background things. I did so much extra work. I'm shocked that you actually, uh, you know, that you brought that up. Nobody even, I mean, you were just asking randomly. You didn't know I had actually been a part of it. No, I think Dana read somewhere that you had been a part of. I found it on the good old internet when we were doing a little research. It's all out there, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we did. We played Spot Danny, if you can. <laughs> and the only thing we could find was either a Spanish or a French version of it, which we couldn't tell which was which. So. <laughs> it's delightful to, to get to try to find you in there. Did you grow up in Queens? You were in Queens, right? Originally from the Bronx. Okay. And when I was about six, my family moved to Queens. And uh, my dad got a job teaching at Queens College. And uh, he just, just retired during the pandemic because, uh, he, you know, he's 84 and he went, I can't do this Zoom thing. <laughs> I did not to do it anymore. Um, but uh, he taught there, you know, gosh, 50 something years altogether. That's incredible. What did he teach? Ancient Greek philosophy. Yeah. So it was always interesting around the house. And, and my mom is a painter. And uh, she came here when she was 17 with her family from Costa Rica. And Spanish is actually actually my first language. Oh, wow. um, I don't get a chance to speak much Spanish nowadays. And it's sort of, you know, a lot of it has gone from my head. But uh, I wish I did. Both my older brother and my younger brother are beautifully fluent in the language. But uh, just started going to school and then it started to slowly ebb. Jason, you can send him that clip and then he can tell us if it's Spanish. Yes, more French, yes. <laughs> I actually took my family to Costa Rica, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. Oh. And, uh, and I, I, we spent about eight days there. And after about a week, um, I was having full-on conversations with cab drivers. And Rebecca was, you know, I was sitting up front with the cab driver and the boys and Rebecca were in the back. And she was slapping me from the back going, <laughs> You know, it's like an onion. My life is, is just insane. My dad, who I call my dad, is my stepfather, uh, Harvey Burstein, uh, who is an amazing human being who raised my older brother and my younger brother and myself, three boys in the house. But my biological father left when I was two months old, left a note and left my mom there who was, you know, didn't speak English very well and the whole nine yards. Uh, and, you know, we lived in the, in a, literally a, a studio basement in the, in the Bronx, uh, the studio apartment in uh, uh, in the in a basement in the Bronx, and on ironically Shakespeare Avenue. Oh, and, oh wow! Um, you know, my mom used to sew people's clothes uh, in the building. I showed, you know just to make money and knit people clothes, knit people's clothes, and uh, take care of the elderly in the building just to make a little money, so she wouldn't have to get out, uh, be away from the from my older brother and I. She was an amazing human being, and uh, like yeah. And so they 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 met because my mother was taking care of my stepfather's mother in who lived in the building. Oh wow! And, uh, yeah, so it all sort of worked out. Your 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 father teaches philosophy. Your mom has got all these talents and is so integrated in the community and doing so much for so many people. It's sort of there's so much that you're saying right off the bat that tells me how you got to be. It's kind yeah. of like, and you're on Shakespeare Avenue. What else? <laughs> what else is there to do? What yeah. else do you need? Exactly. It was fate. Um, I, yeah, it was, uh, I, I got very lucky. I used to love to try and I knew my mom was sad as a kid. I was very young, but I knew she was sad. And I went, I would try to cheer her up. And, and uh, I started, I guess that sort of planted something in me. And uh, when I was younger, my dad gave me books to read. And I, would, I hated reading. As a kid, just hated it. And then when I was about eight or nine, he gave me started giving me plays, and all of a sudden it was like oh, a light bulb went off. I understood, and I loved 
the dialogue form. I love people going after each other and talking things out and agreeing on things or and coming to some kind of conclusion or not. And people keeping secrets and mm. just, it was kind of, it was so much like real life. And they were, they would curse too, you know, as a kid. <laughs> By reading, people actually say these things. Yeah, yeah. It was so uh, uh, in, it was so exciting to read and um, enticing. And uh, I just kept reading one play after another, and then um, then I then I became a reader. After that, I just loved 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 reading. Do you remember what the first play was that he gave you? Yes, you're not going to think it's true, but he gave, <laughs> I don't know why he would give an eight year old uh, Ibsen, but he gave me Peer Gint. <laughs> Oh, oh my God! <laughs> that's that's a tough Ibsen play. Yeah, that's one of those hard ones. I didn't get all of it, obviously, but what I loved were the scenes between him and his mother, mm. <laughs> and I just you know they they you know argue things out. They were constantly bickering the two of them, and uh, that really started it out. And then when I was thirteen, uh, I did a show in uh, in junior high school. And my English teacher, who was directing the show, said, you know, you should go to the High School of Performing Arts. And I said, great, what's the High School of Performing Arts? And he said, well, it's this amazing school where they have all these actors there and musicians and dancers. And Liza Minnelli went there and Ben Vereen went there. And I said, sounds amazing. Yeah. What should I do? He said, well, you have to prepare a couple of monologues. And I said, great. What's a monologue? And you know, he explained it to me, and I prepared, and uh, I really, really worked on them. And um, I had two uh, two-minute monologues. And the year I auditioned, over four thousand kids auditioned, and about one hundred and twenty-seven made it in that year. And that getting into that school changed my life. It really did. And on, I remember on the very first day of class. A guy named Jerry Escow, who was uh, a director, he directed uh, Most Happy Fella in London, and he also uh, was uh, one of Brando's standbys in Streetcar. Um, he said, if you don't want to be an actor, you know, 14 years old, if you don't want to be an actor for the rest of your life, there's the door. <laughs> and I thought, okay. <laughs> and uh, it sounded exciting to me. I mean, he's yeah. playing hardball pretty quick. Yeah, seriously. Oh right, right from the get-go. In know. the door. <laughs> Who knows what you're going to do when you're 14 years old? Uh, but I I just jumped in, and I, you know, I, I bought it. I really did, and I loved it, and I love doing what I do. I think um, that's the, been the key to my longevity in this business. Just I, I love it so much. I love the people so much. I love the community. Um <laughs> And I've been very lucky that way. Well, without getting too schmaltzy, we we want to we want to share something with you that I think Sean shirt back on. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute! Well, I you just uh, totally threw him for a loop. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I was about to get the motion, but forget it. I'm not going to tell you that. Um, you don't may not know it because you know, we, it's like, it's a restaurant and we've seen you over the years and you're always like really lovely and approachable and wonderful to talk to. And you're, you're a great customer. We, we love you. You're, we love it there. We feel that one of the reasons why you're so special to us is one of our mutual friends who worked at the restaurant got his first Broadway gig on drowsy chaperone. 
Actually, he got another Broadway show, but it, this one was better. <laughs> this one was better. So we'll say this was his first Broadway show. Was it Kilty? Kilty Reedy, yeah. Yeah, of course. What was wonderful was not only the opportunity that it was for Kilty, but that we all got to see the Drowsy Chaperone when it was way, way, way under the radar. The heart of that show, the humor of that show, the wit of that show. Yeah. And your magnificently hilarious performance in it was a high point for me and for others. And so, um, anyway, it's very special. It's very special. Thanks, Sean. I, I just have to say, you have great taste. <laughs> <laughs> we really do. You really do. Yeah. Also, hear the shows we talk about. Yeah, it is. We, we talk, there's a few that come up in a lot of our conversations, and Drowsy Chaperone is one of them. It always seems to find its yeah. way into our, when we're discussing other things. So here's the truth. If you asked, uh, and I'll, I'll bet you, if you asked anybody in that, in that show, um, what their favorite experience on Broadway was, um, they'll, even if they say, well, I have so many, blah, 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 they're all my children and all that kind of stuff. Um, Drowsy Chaperone will probably be, uh, would probably be at the top of that list because it was a first Mm. for so many of us. And we all loved each other so damn much. Um, I'll bet if I, you know, made a phone call right now, I could call any one of them and go, hey, How's it going? And, you know, and, and just we pick up where we left off. I just saw Bob Martin yesterday. We did a reading together. Um, you know, and it's just like old home week seeing anybody from that show. I love them all so damn much. And and uh, Casey Nicola, you know, we started out sitting in the back of the room, you know, doing readings together. And, you know, where he would always go, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Why are they just over there? And, right there? and I'd go, you're right. Say something, you know. And he eventually took off after that. And that was his first show. It was uh, so many of our first, uh, it felt like we landed Hmm. in that show. And I'd been working steadily since I was younger, since I was a teenager. Um, And it, you know, it was 42. I I was 42 and it was my first Tony nomination. It was the first, you know, all of a sudden I was there and I felt like I had landed uh, in the theater community even though I'd been around for such a long time. I think any show about life upon the wicked stage, noises off or drowsy chaperone or what have you, people like us are going to be gravitate to it that much more and love it that much more because we see maybe a little more truth to it or the absurdity of it or can recognize all the silly little archetypes. I I remember seeing it and just falling in love. And like Dana said, that's the show that comes up the most after Sweeney Todd. And especially, you know, the entire set joke with the wrong album is just the most expensive joke in theater history. (laughs) It is. I bring a message from a nightingale. Yeah. Those guys are all so, so damn smart. You know, they were at Second City in Toronto. And so uh, that's where all that was born. And um, when they came to New York, you know, with things didn't exactly fit on the actors here, they tailored them to the actors in our company. We did a lot of improv and Casey and Bob were really, really smart about it. And they'd go, that was fantastic hold on to that, you know, and then let that go. You know, you don't need that, but that part is fantastic. And that's how we built it. We have our program. See it in the camera there. Fantastic. 
As much as we love Drowsy, we want to congratulate you on winning a Tony uh, for Moulin Rouge. And I know being in that theater, the Hirschfeld, was very special for you. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about your relationship to that theater? The Hirschfeld, uh, which was the Martin Beck, of course, was where my wife did uh, The Sound of Music. Yeah. So I was in that theater a lot because of that. And that was very, very, I mean, that's, you know, been very, very important to me over the course of all that's gone on uh, this past couple of years. Um, And being there and feeling her close, feeling her spirit and feeling and remembering exactly where I sat when I first Mm -hmm. saw her in The Sound of Music and thinking, is that is that on a track somewhere? It sounds yeah, perfect. Yeah. You know, it sounds so so beautiful. Um, I remember exactly that feeling, uh, and um, and then now being on the stage and performing uh, out there, I, it just it just uh, it is a, was a big full circle moment for me. Had you met Rebecca before you saw her in Sound of Music? Uh, yeah, we were dating. Okay, uh, All right. during during Sound of Music, yeah. Yeah, but you know, here's a here's the thing. I don't I don't know if I well, Daniel will tell me whether whether it's on the internet. <laughs> but um years ago when I was I guess I was just can't remember whenever uh Phantom first opened, but about six months after it opened, Rebecca took over for the role mm-hmm. of Christine. And I remember passing the majestic and seeing her and it's gonna sound so freaking corny, but I remember seeing her picture outside. And just, she was so beautiful, I had to stop and look at the picture. Mm. And this is, it's, it's true, because I had actually forgotten about it and only remembered it after uh, we were dating. Uh, I looked at her picture and was so awestruck by it. And a little voice in my head said, this is so corny, but it, it actually happened. I looked at her picture and I, and I, I heard a voice say, uh, she needs me, hmm. and uh, it was so it was so unusual. I never I don't hear voices normally, you know. Yeah. But it, I had that distinct feeling that I heard that in my head, and then I walked away and I forgot about it. And um, it was only after I guess after we were working together that's when. Uh, that's when I remembered it. Yeah, that she was because I remembered that she was in Phantom. I knew her. Uh, mostly, uh, she came onto my radar because of Secret Garden. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but we met doing a show called Time and Again. At uh, that was based on the Jack Finney novel at the Old Globe. Jack O'Brien was directing it, and it never made it into town. Unfortunately, it was one of those out of town flops. I do love that book. Um, oh yes, yeah. yeah. movie not so much. It's okay, but that book is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I assume it was a musical. If you two were it both was. in it. Yeah, yeah, and Howard McGillan and Des Mulaski and George Dvorsky and the five of us would hang out together and we were thick as thieves. But uh, unfortunately, it, it didn't uh, quite all come together. But there are some gorgeous, gorgeous just... things in it. A beautiful score, so, which Howard and, and Rebecca singing opposite each oh, other. Mm. Must have been yeah. amazing. Oh. Well, that's a beautiful story. And yes, we don't think that you're crazy. It's beautiful. <laughs> and we're, you know, we were big fans of uh, Rebecca as well. So, you know, we're very sorry for, for that loss for you and, you. and for, and for us, because 
she was you know, everybody, yeah everybody loved her she was one of those people she's so so kind so sweet and uh you know i i believe in you know whoever wherever you are when you walk in the room that everybody is should you should treat everybody the same i've always felt like that but uh rebecca really lived that mm. she really did whether she was meeting presidents or or the or i'm not kidding the homeless guy up the block who's still there fatty this lovely guy who i talk to almost every day um she you know treated him like she just the way she treated jimmy carter you know it was uh Pretty, pretty impressive, and uh, she was a wonderful human being, and crazy talented, and beautiful. And all <laughs> yeah, that. yeah. You wrote very openly and honestly about not only your COVID experience, but also sort of eulogizing your wife in the Hollywood Reporter, which was just—I mean—the article brought me to tears. It seems as if you're an open book and honest guy and willing to share that stuff do you think that makes you heal a little bit faster or a little bit more deeply or connects you more to the community um i, I think it does all three personally yeah i i never i never meant to start writing those articles um i was in the hospital and i just come out now i'd almost died of covid in march of 2020 and um my pal uh, the playwright sarah rule said write it down write down everything that you just went through because it'll be important, you know, just write it down just to memorialize it. And I wrote it all down in a flourish and never intended it for it to be published anywhere. And she thought maybe she would, uh, they would put it on a website, but there's a different person who is the editor of the website that she had. She loved what I had written. And uh, the, the editor at that website looked at it and said, great, I'd like to cut 40% of it. And I went, uh, I'm not, going to, I, I don't want this to be published so I can, you know, fashion it to your website. Uh, this is what happened to me. I'm not cutting, I'm not changing it. And um, I also, I just sent it to a few friends who, just to let them know what I'd just been through. And one of them is a dear friend of mine who happens to be the director, Bartlett Shear. Uh, Bart saw it and went, darling, darling, this has to be published. That's right. And I went, no, well, Actually, it's just for you guys. He goes, I'm going to get it published. You know, and he sent it around. And uh, David Rooney at The Hollywood Reporter uh, read it. And I said, okay. Uh, he said he wanted to talk to me. I said, you can publish it, but I don't want it touched. I want it to be exactly the way I wrote it. And he went, okay. It's a little longer than we usually do things, but okay. And so it came out. And, um, and then people started... What I what I didn't under I didn't uh, anticipate was people telling me that uh, they would send it to family members because they had family members who didn't believe it was real. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And it's like what? It's like it's like telling me that this this yeah. is not real is here. What are you talking about? I just was in the hospital and everyone around me was dying, and they you know, and I was near the nurses' station, and they were talking about this this one that died in that room. The whole floor was COVID, and you know, it was a horrible, horrible experience. And I felt myself going, you know, over the course of one day, over the course of three hours, I felt those curtains going and I thought, oh, this is it. And uh, it was terrible, terrible. Um, so writing that was, uh, I guess, cathartic for me, but also wound up, you know, helping some people, I hope. Um, and then then Becca was sick. And uh, um, three months after the, the initial one, David Rooney, 
at Hollywood Reporter again wrote me and said, hey, would people want to know how you're doing now, three months later? And I, you know, I said, I don't know exactly how I'm doing, but uh, I am dealing with this. And it was uh, Rebecca's illness. And she'd made an announcement. She'd gone public with her ALS. Um, you know, we, we made that decision together because uh, she needed to say something. You know, she's, well, she's going around town in a wheelchair. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to start saying something. So, you know, we figured we'd get ahead of the narrative. And, uh, and uh, that's so she made the announcement. And then I started talking about it. And we started being... Uh, as open as possible uh, about it and maybe trying to raise awareness and funds for uh, a cure. Um, and they give you a diag they give you a timeline once you've been diagnosed of two to five years. And she didn't, she made it about 13 months from her diagnosis. So uh, she knew she had a limited amount of time. She was going to fight and which she did the whole way. But um, she was going to make as much as she could of the time that she had. Well, she was a marvelous talent. Everybody loves her voice, love her as a person when she would come in, the, the few interactions that I've had with her, uh, and will be terribly missed. <clears throat> I, I can't help but go back to, like you said, the secret garden and hearing uh, how will I ever know. It's just... Yeah, it's hard for me to hear that song. The only way I've gotten through is is gratitude. Yeah. Um, you know, I still, you know, I don't, I mean, the first first year, I I did, last year I did an episode of The Good Fight, mm. and uh, with, and I found myself in the van, and I'd known Baranski a little bit, uh, I found myself in the van with her, you know, being drove, driven to set, and we had like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just uh, the two of us, and we started talking because she'd lost her husband. I'd done her reading with, so I knew him a little bit. And um, and she said, yeah, the first year, it's just weird. <laughs> and it is. It's, it's just weird. But then the thing that I've found is, that's gotten me through is, as I said, gratitude, that uh, just so grateful to uh, have had uh, 20 years of marriage and uh, and great times. You know, in that article, in the last one I wrote, I think I even mentioned Joe Allen, didn't I? Yes. I think so. mm -hmm. yeah. you know, that we would, that, that was part of the thing that we loved to do after shows. You know, we yep. would love to go there. And that was, you know, we just meet and we just, it would make us so happy. She, her, she ordering her red wine and me ordering some draft beer and uh and then you know laughing over uh a salad or, uh, <laughs> or, you know it, it it was uh it's very special to us that place and um and everybody there always treated us so still to this day i was just there the other day yeah um uh everybody you know is as kind as ever and and beautiful as ever and and you know it's, it's tough, but we all move on. I think uh, Sean had a story from when he was a maitre d' at Joe Allen. This isn't about taking clothes and, off. Yeah, his shirt was on for this one. You and Bob Saget, during the, the later part of um, Drowsy Chaperone, participated in my greatest professional embarrassment in the history of that restaurant. And I don't even know if you remember this happening, but I can't imagine you don't because my behavior is so stupid. There's no way <laughs> that you don't remember this. 
So we Let's had see. these Christmas gifts. The, the restaurant makes Christmas gifts for the regulars every year. It could be like a yeah. duffel bag or a glass or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we had Christmas bags and we were really falling behind in getting the bags to people. We were getting notes and what for from upstairs. Like we have these bags. No one's giving them to the regulars. Please give the bags to the regulars. The grousy chaperone table's coming in. Bob walks in. I see him. I turn around to do something. He goes to the back. I didn't give him a bag. Somebody else from the cast one. I don't remember who it is. Walks in. I didn't get him the bag. You come in. You go to the back. And I said, all right, I'm going to get all three of them and I'm going to get the bags and I'm going to get them right now. And I put them under my arm and I'm come over to the table and I say, hi, guys, how you doing? And Bob goes, eh, not so great. We just found out we're closing. And I said, <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. These bags are from Joe Allen. <laughs> and I put one down in each person. <laughs> and I look back and you guys are dying and I'm dying to myself. Like, why? I could have put that task off maybe another day. You have to give it to them right now. Everybody's so down. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations here. And Bob Saggins all the way out the door and he goes, listen, my dog got ran over. Can I have another bag? <laughs> That is that is completely that was completely Bob. Anyway, it's so sweet. It really is. It really is. And he will be missed forever. He was oh. like my brother. Yeah. yeah. I loved him so so much. He was such a an amazing human being. So funny. So bright. Uh and boy, I loved, loved going there with Bob. I really did. And one time I remember specifically. We were, we were, uh, we had just eaten, we'd done our thing, and we were leaving, said goodbye to everybody, and we ran into Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira at the door, outside, and they were going in. <clears throat> and I worked with Jerry on uh, a show called Three Men on a Horse uh, on Broadway, and uh, I'd worked with Annie on the soap opera, and, uh, and Bob knew them, of course, through the business, and they went, come on, join us. So Bob and I, even though we <laughs> all meal and everything, how do you turn down? No, you don't. You don't. Yeah. You still a Stiller and Mira, and you just so we went in with them and sat down and had another dinner with them. <laughs> let you know all the jokes and all the stories going by, and it was just it was just heaven. It really was heaven. You know, as a kid, I dreamt about moments like that, and there I was living it with those with my heroes. Do you remember the first time you came to, to, to Joe's? No, probably around the time I did my first Broadway show, A Little Hotel on the Side. That was like 92 or 93. I think it was the 92, 93 season. Yeah. Well, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm very fascinated by the whole National Actors Theater exper- uh, mm-hmm. experiment. And Tony Randall was trying to create a repertory theater in the commercial theater space in New York on Broadway. Yeah. And I looked on your um, IBDB page, and you did five shows with them yeah. in a space of about two and a half years, kind of early on. Yeah. So, I mean, I can imagine that must have been oh. people you were working with. There's an incredible array of incredible. artists. Incredible. And I only got that because um, I did a, a show I did around the world in 80 days at the Muni with Tony. And Ed Greenberg, who was the producer there, who was also uh, my teacher at Queens College, um, he he cast me in this role opposite him. Uh, it's a 
tour de force kind of role. You play four different characters in the show. In each town that uh, that Tony would visit, I, I would show up in a different outfit and in a different accent. And all of a sudden he was in this country and all of a sudden I was Indian and all of a sudden he was in the deep South. And so I had a big Southern drawl, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was wonderful. And we became fast friends. And I said, look, if you ever do that national actors theater thing, uh, I'd love to be a part of it. And he said, I'll do that. So uh, <laughs> like whatever it was like four or five years later, I picked up the phone. And I heard Danny, Tony Randall. <laughs> there he was. And he said, I'd like you to be a part of my company. Just like we talked about. And I hadn't talked to him since. Uh, but after that, we became close. And uh, I would go to his house uh, every year for Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, I would. He would ask me to run lines with him at his house. You know, it was just we 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 became good friends, and to this day, I'm still very close with their family, with his family. I love them all. Yeah, great people. I remember early on as a waiter seeing Tony Randall. I loved the old odd couple. And he was older at this point, and he still was very, very dapper. He would say things that were extremely witty and quick. They would come out of nowhere. He was awesome. Loved, loved Tony Randall. He was. The first, the first time I met him I, I, at the Muni, I found myself all alone with him. And he was he and Jack, who, who was also in Three Men on a Horse, but uh, he and Jack were my heroes growing up. And they were so ridiculously funny, the two of them. And, you know, I was so intimidated. The first time I met him, I sat down and I was telling him, he said, tell me about yourself. And I told him I was about to get married and I was going to grad school, graduate school for what? I said, oh, for acting. He said, really? So you'll be able to teach. And I said, yeah, I'll be able to teach it. If you had an acting class in front of you right now, what would you tell them was the most important part of acting? And I was so green and I was so nervous. <laughs> I said, well, my favorite uh, acting teachers always said that acting is doing and acting is reacting. And he went, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> listening. <laughs> said, well, that's very much a part of reacting, don't you think? And he said, don't argue with me, you asshole. <laughs> you get down on your knees and thank me for telling you. Then he got up and said, it takes 10 years to learn how to listen. 10 years. And walked away. <clears throat> and I thought, ah, got a story forever. It's <laughs> the best. One for me. No, it was just the best. I, and I loved him. And we became great friends. And uh, it was the 25th anniversary of Marilyn Monroe's death. And you know, while we were working together, and I said, oh, yeah, I know you guys have worked together. You guys worked together on a film. Um, are, is everybody asking you about her? Because there was so much in the news about her. He said, no, not one. I said, nobody's asked you. Like, it's a good thing, too. Miserable bitch. <laughs> you know, so many great stories from him. I think you've got a one-man show where you just do Tony Randall. Yeah, there you go. I, I could do a whole afternoon on Tony. I've done so much, yeah. Oh, my goodness. There's a one, one memory I, that I sort of, uh, sort of also sticks out in my head uh, from Joe Allen is uh, I went to... Uh, Eat, and I was sat in the back, which was very sweet. Uh, and at one of the tables across the way, I was there with my son, Alex, my older son, Alex, who's now 29 and uh, a first AD on indie films. He's uh, a great, great kid. And he still has yet to give his old man a job, but he's a great kid. Um, but across the way from us was Joan Rivers and, and a dear friend of hers. And I was doing Follies at the time. 
And I remember, you know, getting in, sitting down there and waving to hello to her because, you know, you know, these people through the business and, but I didn't know her friend and about 15 minutes in, and I saw them constantly looking over at me and, uh, Joan came over and said, Danny, do you mind? Uh, my friend saw you in Follies and is a big fan and would like to meet you. And I said, no, not at all. I, 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 I'd love to come over. She goes, no, we'll come to you. So the two of them came and sat at our table and I spoke to the friend and my son Alex spoke to Joan and they, you know, for about 20 minutes or so. And then they were so sweet and they got up and they went back to their table and we continued on. And my son said, who is she? I said, oh. it's Joan Rivers. You don't know who Joan Rivers is? He said, no, I really don't. I guess it was, he was about 22. And I said, she's one of the, you know, most amazing comedians ever. And he said, you know what she is? She's honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she really is. She's really honest. And he said, and she's really funny. I said, yeah, she is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you met her, you know, because that's going to be for life. Joe Allen affords moments like that. Uh, you mentioned Follies. I thought that Dana was going to... Uh... I have my Follies my Follies program, yes. And another one, a special show to me, Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, especially to... Myself and my family, we really, we really loved that. And thank you for your Tevia. Seeing you do that was incredible. Thank you. When you work with somebody like Bart, uh, he, he says from the very beginning, if we're going to do a revival of a piece... There's only one reason to do it, and that's to say something with it for today. And I just started doing as much research as I could. I did uh, Fiddler on the Roof in community theater when I was a kid, and I was in the chorus. And uh, I did it again in Summerstock um, with Theodore Pakel. And so I, you know, I learned the show uh, as much as I could then, and uh, and I read as much as I could. There was a, a book. From Jerome Robbins' assistant, I can't remember exactly what it was, uh, what it's called, but uh, from the original production, and he took notes, copious notes about everything that went on. And there were two books that came out about Fiddler on the Roof uh, right when we were about to open, so I devoured those. And I basically take all that information and put it, you know, in a backpack, and I bring it into rehearsal with me. And I learn all that stuff, but then I'm willing to. Forget it all, too. You know, if if, if it uh, if it's necessary or if it's useful, I use it. And if not, that's okay, too. And then I just do my best to make it as real as possible, no matter what show I'm doing, no matter what genre it is. Um, I have to be excited about it. You know, I've always been terribly selective about what I do. Uh, I, you know, after uh, Drowsy Chaperone, I got all these sort of Latin lovery kind of offers and uh, South Pacific New York wheeler dealer kind of things and, and fiddler, you know, every Jew in the world. You know, <laughs> and I, I just want to do something different. I was, you know, tell my agents that. And that's how uh, um, Moulin Rouge came along because it was nothing unlike anything I'd ever done before. And, um, my agents are, I'm sure, frustrated sometimes because of all that, because I turned down so much stuff that is too similar mm-hmm. or uh, you know, doing fiddler again in wherever. Um, and, um, 
Yeah. But my agent, <laughs> years ago, my agent sent me um, an email for uh, an audition for an indie film called Nor'easter, where I had to play a gay, deaf pedophile that worked in a pizza shop in Maine. Wow. I thought, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do that role. And, you know, and I worked uh, with a, a teacher, an, an ASL teacher, and I, and I you know, worked uh, up an audition for them. I went in, I met the uh, director, and I got the role. And it's one of my favorite things that I've ever done, this indie film called Nor'easter. Uh, it's just, it's such a bizarre, offbeat character that, you know, people wouldn't go, get me daddy bursting. No, I'm, no, that's, <laughs> that's what I love about it. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, did you paint your own nails for uh, Moulin Rouge or did somebody do that for you? I did initially. And yeah. it, was a, it was a huge disaster. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> It is, it hard is hard to paint your own nails. Trust, I, I've i tried. I can't yeah. do it either. Oh, I'm terrible at it. And, and the follow-up question is, Please. what sort of facial hair will you be growing for the next role? I don't know. I, I think maybe that's... big mutton chops. I haven't seen you in those. <laughs> I know. When I play Scrooge someday. Okay, we're getting close to yes. you know, our allotted time. So. What? I know, Dana. Interviews. I know. So we have our uh, last call questionnaire. It's our Joe Allen version of Proust questionnaire. Just whatever comes to your mind. Okay. All right. First question: What's your drink at Joe Allen? Uh, it's a draft beer. Uh, two days ago, it was a fat tire. Mm, I, I recall pouring that for you. Actually, mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> Well poured. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, if I wasn't an actor, I think I'd be a teacher. Uh, I love, I love doing talkbacks, and I love uh, you know answering questions and helping young people grow and blossom. Okay. Both my parents are teachers, and I think it's the noblest of mm. professions. Yeah. yeah. What live performance that you saw floored you the most? Uh, one that I was dragged to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never thought we went to the TKTS booth and uh, I thought, oh, God, what I want to see is not up. And I, okay, I was young and I thought, all right, let's go see Dream Girls. <laughs> the original production. Oh wow! Oh, blew my mind. Yeah, blew my mind, and to this day, it you know it's right up there with a, maybe maybe the best thing I've ever seen in a theater. It's just so unbelievable, and I walked out of there thinking everybody is on that stage is so incredibly talented, but Michael Bennett. Holy cow. Yeah. Genius, genius, genius. You know, most people have trouble answering that, but you... You did not. Mm. Yeah. Didn't at all. So good. So, so good. What's your favorite dish at Joe's? Uh, the burger. <laughs> Medium rare. Mm. Uh, I, I, just, I just love it. I always have with a little cheddar. I used to get bacon on it because I love that too, but I, you know... Over the years, I went, I should probably not get the bacon, you know, as I get older. Yeah. You know? But I do still get the cheddar burger. It's my favorite thing. 
I get it like 80% of the time. <clears throat> what is your favorite curse word? Fuck. Mm. Absolutely. I'd say 75% of the people who answer that question, that's the answer. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. If you could invite anyone to join you for a perfect New York evening of Broadway and dinner at Joe Allen, who would you invite? My wife. Hmm. And lastly, pick one word to describe how you feel about Joe Allen, the establishments. One word? Uh, three, four, ten, fourteen. I love Joe Allen. It's there. I have such an emotional connection to Joe Allen. I love the people. I love the atmosphere. I love the food. It's also so relaxed. It's where it's where special moments have happened in my life, and I know more will continue to happen. Uh, in just the recent times that I was there, I hadn't seen Patti Lapone since we did Women on the Verge. And she had come back at, uh, to see, uh, after uh, Moulin Rouge, she'd come back to see me. But I didn't know she was there. She didn't tell anybody. And so I scooted out the, uh, the side door that night, trying to get home quickly. Um, and so I saw Patty, and we caught up. It was just you know, such a wonderful Joe Allen moment. And uh, I just did a reading two days ago with uh, Leslie Odom, Jr., and we both finished the reading it went so well we were both so happy and it was like giving each other a big hug and we went it's our separate ways and an hour later boom we're both <laughs> right next to each other at joel and so uh i right. met his his mentor his teacher who mm. was at the reading we did together and he met my friends and you know it's it's the kind of place where where you know happiness abounds for me and I, I love it there, and I'll continue to go because it just it just makes me so damn happy to be there. I think we have our new opening for our show. I think Danny just described exactly <laughs> why we started this podcast yeah, exactly. and your answer. So thank you. My pleasure. Oh. My pleasure to be with you guys. Yes, it was, a, was really so, an honor. Thank yes, you so much. Really, thank you so much. And we like to end with a toast. So let's raise a glass to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at Table 7. Cheers. 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 Thank you so much for, for taking the time out to do this. We so appreciate it. Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.